That's the book of Psalms, chapter 145, verse 1. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. May the Lord add his blessing to the wonder and amazement that God would have such works for you and for me on that cross, that we might have that opportunity to pass that information on to the next generation, that they too might find Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. Well, it's my earnest desire whenever I step into this pulpit that we would all gain a greater understanding and a, a greater appreciation of who God is. And this is eminently true as we go through these, these, this series on the attributes of God. And this is the, the second last week of this series. Um, next week I'll be focusing on the, the truthfulness of God, which, which really means the faithfulness of God in the, in the, the sense that, that was originally that word was originally used. But this morning I'm going to be looking at the goodness of God, the goodness of God. And each week as I, as I prepare for my sermon, it's, it's my earnest prayer that the Lord would reveal to all of us, but especially to me, first and foremost to me, that I would get a sense of who God is to be able to relay that to you. I don't want to come up here and try to share something with you that I have no knowledge of or no experience of. So I'm dependent on the Holy Spirit to do that in me as we're all dependent on the Holy Spirit to enlighten us and to guide us into truth. And I've got to confess that, that sometimes it's a little bit, it doesn't come as naturally for me. Sometimes it, it, for me to, to understand these, these things about who God is, sometimes it's a little bit more difficult, and sometimes it takes a little bit longer. Sometimes I don't even really, I feel, don't even get a, a, a real sense of, of what I'm going to be, be sharing in the depths of what I'm sharing. It doesn't even really hit me until I, I come up here and stand up here. But it has been amazing how each week, each week, God has answered that prayer. And that God is, is revealing himself to me. And so many of you have testified of the same thing, that the Holy Spirit has, has done that in your lives as well. And I'm so grateful for that. And we really want to praise God together for that. But when I set out to, when I, when I prayed at the beginning of the week, Lord, please show me your goodness. It just immediately, my mind was flooded with the blessings that the Lord is pouring out in my life. 
as I, as I think about it, and, and I'm, I'm in good health, we're seeing this church grow in unity and love for each other and love for the Lord. And of course, very high on my list right now is the fact that that in 12 days, I am going to marry Jane, the woman of my dreams, a woman who is, is more beautiful and more godly and sweeter than I ever could have imagined. So it's easy for me to think about the goodness of God in these circumstances. But God isn't just good when life is fun. God is good all the time. God's very nature is good. All that is good emanates from him, and he is the source and standard of all that is good. But sometimes we just have a wrong definition of what goodness really is. So please, if you will, turn with me to, to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Mark 10, 17. Hopefully this, uh, this story is, is familiar to you. Here we see that, that God is the standard. That God is the standard of all that is good. We see here that a man ran up to Jesus and fell on his knees before him and said, Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So even though he ran up to Jesus, even though he knelt before Jesus, even though he called Jesus good, and even though he appeared to want eternal life, Jesus knew his heart. Jesus saw through the man's approach, saw through the man's posture, saw through his greeting, and saw through his question, and saw the problem. The man was self-righteous. He thought his so-called goodness could merit him eternal life. He thought he could earn his salvation. So Jesus doesn't even immediately answer the man's question. He says, Jesus asks him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so by doing that, he is revealing this man's heart. This man thought he was good. The man thought that he was good. He thought he was good enough to get to heaven. But before you jump quickly to to judge this, this young man, we all really like to think of ourselves as good, don't we? We all like to think of ourselves as good, or at least better than others. And we all, apart from God's grace, default to trying to earn our salvation. But it is God who is the standard of goodness, and He, in fact, is goodness itself. And there is nothing in the universe that is good that does not come from God. So this man wrongly thought that he had kept all of the commandments. And even in this situation, the good God loved the self-righteous sinner. So here was God himself before this man. And this man thought that he could could relate to God on, on his level. 
thinking of himself as being good. He told Jesus that he had kept all the commandments, but Jesus showed him that he did not even keep the first commandment because he said that you have to sell all you have and follow me. Now, there is nowhere else in all of Scripture that anybody is told that they must sell all they have to follow Jesus. We have to realize that all of the things that we have really do come from God and really do belong to God and that our possessions can often get in the way of our relationship with God. But this was a special circumstance. Jesus said this to reveal to the man that his money was his idol. His money was his functional God and he was looking to his treasure for his happiness. So he treasured his treasure more than he treasured Jesus Christ, the supreme treasure. And so he walked away from God because of his finances. And so Jesus responded there in verse 24 and said, children, how difficult is it for a rich, how difficult is it for someone to enter the kingdom of God? Is it easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were shocked at this statement and they said, well, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Man cannot save himself. This rich young man could not save himself. But, but look back at verse 21. Knowing everything that was in his heart, knowing his self-righteousness, knowing that this man was damned to hell, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved him. The good God loved the self-righteous sinner. And that gives us a sense of just how good God is. It's easy to love people that love us, isn't it? It's easy to be good to people who are good to us. But the evidence of somebody who really loves God is that we love other people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. John said that how can we say that we love God who we haven't seen if we don't love our brother who we have? So the reality of a relationship with God, the reality of someone who has been acted upon by the love of God and knows the love of God is somebody who will eagerly pour out love on other people. But God is not just the standard of all that is good. God is also the source of all that is good, the source Every good thing that we receive is actually a gift from God. J. 
James 1.17, we studied this a few months ago. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The eternal God is the same in his love, past, present, and future. And there's really four chief ways in which human beings experience the goodness of God. They experience it through his love, through his grace, through his mercy, and through his patience. And all of these are integral to his nature, and each one of these could be the, the, the topic for many sermons. But in the time that I have this morning, I just want to, to recount and remind us of the goodness of God as demonstrated in his love, grace, mercy, and patience. You see the love of God on every single page of the Bible. It's there everywhere. 1 John 4, 8 says that God is love. God is love. He is love itself. Louis Burkhoff defines the love of God as the perfection of God by which he is eternally moved to self-communication. In other words, it is, it is in God's nature. His, his love is to reveal himself to his creation, to be in communion with his creation. But there is a massive, a gargantuan gulf that separates us from the love of God, and that is sin. It's sin. I talked a lot about this last week when we discussed the, the judgment of God and the holiness of God. Because God is holy, he detests sin. And because he is just, he must punish sin. Our sin is the gulf that separates us from God from God who is love. And God's love existed for all eternity. It's not as though he started to love when he created the universe. God's love was, was demonstrated and was, was perfect in the, the persons of the Trinity as, as the, they worked and loved together before anything existed except for God himself. And it's only in the cross of Christ, as we will see, that that love, that that love was broken as the Father poured out his wrath on the Son, us. Because God is absolutely good in himself, his love cannot find complete satisfaction in anything that falls short of absolute perfection, as says Robert Raymond. So God loves his rational creatures, that's human beings, in a special way for their own sake. He loves in them himself, his virtues, his, his work and his gifts. God loves 
man even in his sin because in man we have the image of god so when we when we hear of just this week i heard on the on the news about how people are indignant because a dog that apparently bit somebody has been at, in the pound for 16 or 18 months and people are up in arms about this now you know i have a dog i'm a dog lover but this is a dog this is not a human being a dog does not have the image of god a dog does not have god's love set upon it as god sets his love on his rational creatures and there's a common misconception that God is somehow more loving in the New Testament than he was in the Old Testament. And this is a gross misunderstanding of God's character. Remember that God never changes. He is eternal and immutable. He has always been and will always be the same. In Old Testament times, God poured out great, great love, mercy, and kindness, and grace, and patience. And likewise, in the New Testament, we see God's wrath. God hasn't changed. His goodness and love are the same forever. Don Carson suggests that some consider this formula credible, mainly because the manifestation of God's wrath in the Old Testament was primarily in temporal categories, whereas in, in the New Testament we see that it is in eternal realities that we see God's judgment come in the hereafter. And what he's essentially saying there is that in the, in the Old Testament we see God's judgment in the form of war and famine and pestilence and disease. Whereas in the New Testament, we see, we see God's wrath coming in, in final judgment. Now, God's wrath is the corollary of God's love. Without God's justice, we don't have his love. We don't have his love. The Old Testament displays the grace and love of God primarily in experience and in types. But then these realities become clearer in the New Testament. In other words, God's love, just as his wrath, is also ramped up in the New Testament until it comes to final judgment. And these themes are presented again and again throughout redemption history and are apparently unresolved until they reach a climax at the cross. Until they reach a climax at the cross, and then they will reach their final fulfillment when the Lord comes back to judge his creation. It's in the cross that God's love and God's wrath are most clearly seen. Because at that moment, Jesus felt the loss and displeasure of his father as his father poured out his righteous anger. The wrath 
that you and I deserved was put on the Son in our place. That's love. That's love as Christ gave up his life for his people. So this, this loss and the sense of the, the Father's love and care, the break in this was something that Jesus had never before experienced, and it was far worse, far worse than any physical punishment that Jesus experienced on the cross. And it's in the light of this, it's in the light of the cross, that we can only begin to understand God's love. I mean, almost everybody would would believe that God is loving. If you were to take a poll of people who claimed belief in God, virtually all of them would agree that God is loving. But of course, the, the vast majority would have very wrong ideas of love and very unbiblical ideas about what God's love is. They might even be able to quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But they have no idea how God loved the world or why God sent his Son. And I really think that this is often true even within churches. And why is that? I think it's, it's largely true because people don't consider the context of the passage. So please turn with me to, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And I've shared with you before that, that one, the, the first real um, exposure that I had to the gospel was when, when watching wrestling with some friends, and somebody held up a sign that said John 3.3, which says that, that no one can see the kingdom unless he is born again. If it had been John 3.16, I probably would have said, wow, yeah, I, that's great, I believe that. But I needed to know that I wasn't born again, and that I had no claim on the love of God because of my sin. And so people fail to realize what's happening here, that that Jesus is having a conversation with a Pharisee, with a Jew named Nicodemus, and that Jesus is showing Nicodemus the way of salvation. Just after verse 316, we see verse 318, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Jesus is here explaining to Nicodemus how that belief comes about. Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus where that love comes from, how people are born again. So again, back here in in verse Three of chapter 3, Jesus says you must be born again. And then he says in verse 5 that truly, truly, I say to you, unless, one is, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says that the wind blows where it wills, but, but people don't understand where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
And Nicodemus is shocked by this explanation. So he says, how then can this be? So we need to see John 3.16 in the light of the passage, not pulling it out of its context. He is here speaking to a Jew. And he's explaining that, that God loved the world, not the world without exception, as is commonly thought, but the world without distinction. So often we fail to study Scripture, not only in, without seeing its biblical context, but without seeing its historical context, without understanding what was happening at the time that this was written, what was going on behind this interaction. You see, the Jews felt that as the chosen people, salvation was limited to them. That salvation, they were God's elect only. And that Gentiles could not be saved. But they really failed to understand what God's salvation meant. They failed to understand the covenant the promise that God had made with Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, the beginning of that promise, where, where God promises, this is the pre-incarnate Christ, promises Abraham that in him all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Not just Jews. Not just Jews. But Gentiles as well. And, and it's hard for us to think about these things because we are living in a time when the church is full of Gentiles. The vast majority of the church is made up of Gentiles. So we really need to, to, to try to understand these things in light of what was happening here at this time and what it would have meant for Nicodemus as a Jew to receive these words. It, it's so dangerous to pull a verse out of context, because you can take a verse in Scripture to make whatever you want it to mean. That's called eisegesis, to read into what's there, to read into it what our presuppositions are. But we need to submit ourselves to what God's Word says, not just the things that are easy, but the things that are hard to understand, the things that are difficult to swallow. So what does it mean then, for God so loved the world? What does it mean? Does God really love the whole world? He does. He does love the whole world. But not in the sense that most people take it to mean in John 3.16. I'll talk in a moment about God's common grace. Common grace, but that's not what Jesus is speaking about here. He's talking, he's talking about saving grace. He's talking about saving grace, about the grace that is on the elect, the grace that is for the elect. So in order to understand this, we also need to look at, well, what does the word world mean? What does the word world mean? So often we will impose our thinking and try to make try to, to, to make the word say something that we don't even take it to mean in our own 
in our own usage, in our own culture, let alone the way the Bible uses it. In John 12, 19, after the triumphal entry, when a great crowd had gathered around Jesus, the Pharisees lamented, saying, look, you're gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. So did the Pharisees mean there that every single man, woman, and child on the world that ever existed or ever would exist had gone after Jesus? No, they're, they're, they're using a figure of speech. They're using a figure of speech. And we need to let the context show us what it, it actually means. David Engelsma explains that that in this, that it cannot here mean the world without exception in John 3.16. Because of, of the way that John uses the word world in the context of salvation in other places. So for example, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. So did Christ, by his death, take away the sin of all people without exception. If he did, then this is universalism because everybody will be saved. Similarly, in John 17, 9, Jesus said, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. If Jesus doesn't pray for all people without exception, then neither did he die for all people without exception. As I explained last week, the blood of Christ is sufficient for everybody, but efficient for the elect. The blood of Christ is powerful enough to save everybody, but it actually saves every person that God has predestined for salvation. So it is the elect on whom the Lord has set his saving love. It is the elect on whom God has put his saving grace. Burkhoff defines grace as the free bestowal of kindness on one who has no claim to it. It is the unmerited goodness or love of God to those who have forfeited it, forfeited it and are by nature under a sentence of condemnation. We have all forfeited the love of God by our nature and by our actions. We were born in sin. We were conceived in sin. We have no claim on the love of God. None whatsoever. Not by good deeds we have done and not by good deeds that we will do. God did not choose those people who would choose him. Then that's just, that's just another way of saying that we're saved by works. We're just saved by future works. We are saved by grace alone. Ephesians 1, 6 and 7 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And then later on in Ephesians 2, 7 and 9, it says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. By grace alone. So by grace, salvation came to us. By grace, sinners receive the gift of God in Christ. By grace, we are justified, and we are given spiritual blessings, and we inherit salvation. It's by grace. By grace alone as a manifestation of God's goodness and his love. But another key part of God's love is God's mercy. Again from Burkhoff, if the the grace of God contemplates man as guilty before God and therefore in need of forgiveness, the mercy of God contemplates him as one who is bearing the consequences of sin, who is in a pitiable condition, and who is therefore in need of divine help. It is the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of what they deserve. So in mercy, God shows himself compassionate. He's compassionate. And he he pours out mercy on those and are ever ready to, to deliver them from their distress. Many of us are reading judges right now as part of the Bible in a year together. In judges, we see again and again the cycle of apostasy where Israel turns away from God and then they cry out to him and then, sorry, he delivers them over to to foreign armies who, who take them captive and who persecute them and then they, they cry out to God, and then he sends them a deliverer who frees them from their distress, and then they turn back to apostasy again. It happens again and again and again throughout the history of Israel. But God, in his mercy, delivers them. David says in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So brothers and sisters, though we have no claim on the goodness of God, we are the special recipients of, of his goodness, of his love, his grace, and his mercy. Because just like the children of Israel, we too have rebelled. And not just once, repeatedly, daily. But God gives us his mercy. Now, if that's not good, I don't know what is. Think about it. This holy, righteous God pours out his love 
on vile sinners who were, who were bent on rebellion against him. So yes, God does love all people, but he has a special love for his elect. Now, I, I try to, failingly, but I try to love all people. I'm called to love people, even those who are my enemies. But if I was to love all women in the same way that I love Jane, I would have a serious problem. I have a special love for my bride. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, Christ has a special love for his bride, his elect, the church. It's a special love, and that is the main purpose for marriage, is to be a display of that love to a fallen world. But if you want to understand God's love for the world without exception, consider his patience. Consider the type of, of long-suffering that he had for Israel. Burkhoff again defines God's patience as that aspect of the goodness or love of God in which he bears with the froward and the evil in spite of their long-continued disobedience. So God extends his mercy not just to his elect, but also to those who are destined for destruction. Romans 9.22, What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? So God had great patience. As we saw last week on the Amalekites, for 400 years he put up with their sin. For 400 years. On Thursday evening, I was sitting out on the deck having dinner. And, uh, and two kids, boys probably about 10 to 12 years of age, rode into the, the parking lot. And one of them, I heard him before I saw him, was uttering some of the most vile blasphemy that I have ever heard in my life. He was cursing God, saying, I don't believe in God, and using horrible swear words in reference to God. And so I, I, I said to him, I said, excuse me, could you please keep a lid on that language? And he said, oh, sorry, sorry. And I said, well, it's not really me that you have to be sorry to. It's God. You are blaspheming his name. And I said, well, or he said, well, I don't believe in God. But just because he doesn't believe in God does not mean that he is, that he is not going to stand before the God that he is blaspheming. The very fact that God did not obliterate this, this young boy on the spot is a great 
testimony of God's goodness as seen in his long-suffering and patience. And what this young boy didn't realize is that the very air in his lungs that he used to breathe out those blasphemies against God was given to him by God himself. That God in his common grace was providing for this young boy's needs. That God in his love was giving this boy shelter. That God in his love was giving this boy food. This is the love of God. God provides for the needs of his creatures. But as bearers of his image, the lives of human beings are of special concern to God, even those who hate him. Matthew 5.45, Jesus tells us to love like God, who makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. It's his son. He doesn't have to share it with anybody. But in his grace, in his grace, he makes his sun to shine even on those who hate him. Even on those who reject his son. Now this providence of God was, is meant to be a testimony, a witness of his goodness. In Acts 14, 17, we read, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. His kindness is meant to lead sinners to repentance, but because of their hard and impenitent hearts, they're storing for themselves wrath in the day of judgment, Romans 2, 4, and 5. But brothers and sisters, we are sitting here, almost all of us, I hope, as the children of God, as the recipients of God's saving grace. And it is only when we think about these things that we're able to call God good, no matter what is happening in our lives. So maybe you're like me. Maybe you are at a, in a happy point in your life. Maybe things are going great. Maybe you're experiencing tangible blessings from God. Maybe you're experiencing God's positive blessing, God's, God's physical grace in, in your health and your relationships with family and in the workplace. And if that's the case, praise God. Praise God for these blessings. Psalm 107.8 says, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and for his wondrous works to the children of man. So we praise God for his pleasant providences. But maybe God's providence isn't very pleasant for you right now. Maybe there's some pain in your life. And if that's the case, if that's the case, you can praise God too. 
There are people here who are facing serious difficulties. Some are encountering problems in their relationships, problems with their health, or problems at work. But let me ask you this. Do the problems that you are facing make God any less good? Are you tempted to question God in the midst of difficult circumstances? It's a very human tendency. It's a very human tendency. We think about Job. Twice the scriptures refer to him as blameless and upright, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. This is the Lord's own description of Job. But nevertheless, the Lord allowed Satan to tempt him. First, Job experienced the loss of his livestock and his servants. And then in one windstorm, he lost all of his children. And what was his response? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge Job with wrong. And then Satan attacks Job again, and this time he was covered with loathsome sores from head to toe. And all of this was allowed by the Lord. All of it. And then adding insult to injury, Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. What was Job's response? You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Again, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. But then Job's so-called friends came, accusing him of sin, saying that it was because of his sin that all of these calamities were happening to him. And this went on and on, and it wasn't until chapter 31 when Job questioned the Lord. Job asserted his innocence and claimed that he was innocent of the lust of the eyes, theft of covetousness, and false worship, and that he gave to the needy. And in verses 35 to 37, he requests an answer from the Lord regarding the charges against him. Now Elihu, who had been silent until that point, and waited patiently and respectfully, proceeded to rebuke Job and Job's three friends. But then the Lord came in chapter 38 and answered Job out of the whirlwind, saying, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I made the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then Job responded, saying, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will answer. I will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. But in chapter 40, the Lord continued, Dress for action like a man, and I will question you. You make it known to me. Will you even put me to the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And then the Lord, Lord proceeded to show his glory in creation. And then Job really repented. And he says in 42.6, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Beloved, when we see ourselves, when we see ourselves before a holy God, before a sovereign God, before a just God, we realize that we have no claim on his goodness. But in his grace and mercy, in his love, he pours out his grace and mercy on us. He loves us in Christ. So in order to understand God's goodness in light of any circumstance, in light of whatever it is that we're facing, we need to look at life cross-eyed. We need to see life through the cross of Christ. So where are you at right now? How do you see the Lord? We've seen in past weeks that he never changes. We've seen that he's wise. We've seen that his plans are perfect. We've seen that he's sovereign. We've seen that there is no single part of your life over which God is not in control. So do you know in your heart of hearts that God is good despite your circumstances? If you don't, then you don't really understand your circumstances. You are in Christ. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Daily. Because if God did not spare his own son for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Beloved, we deserve hell. We deserve hell. And anything that we receive that is better than hell is good. But God doesn't just bless us in little dribs and drabs here and there. He pours out his love for us in Christ and blesses us in every way through our lives. And whatever circumstances that you are in, in this very moment, are the best of all circumstances for you if you are a child of God. Because God in his sovereignty has ordained that your circumstances would be just as they are in order to transform you into the image of Christ, which is the best of all good things for you. We need to train ourselves to see these things and then rejoice in them because God is good even when we don't see it. I'll close here with the story of William Cooper. And I've shared some of this with you before. He was a poet in the 18th century and into the 19th century. And he he regularly struggled with severe depression. However, he still miraculously was able to trust God despite his circumstances. He knew that God was sovereign. And it was at the encouragement of his friend and pastor, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, that the two collaborated to create the only hymnal. 
And perhaps William Cooper's best-known hymn is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. So just as I close here, I'd like us to think about these words. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable, unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds that you so dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Now, I usually don't like the changes that are made in hymns when they, when they modernize them, but a lot of modern hymnals actually replace the line behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, with behind a frowning providence, faith sees a smiling face. And I actually think in this case that this is more accurate. This is one time that I really do prefer the change. Behind a frowning providence, faith sees a smiling face. God isn't hiding his goodness. Just sometimes it takes a bit more faith to see it. So do you need extra faith to see God's goodness in your circumstances this morning? And the place to start is at the cross, to look to the cross of Christ and see a father's wrath poured out on his perfect, sinless son in our place for us, beloved, for us. So I think when we think about these things, we are able, we're able to do what we're commanded to do in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray together.